Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We're a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into this same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and to reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. Um, as we begin, a couple of things before we dive in to Matthew chapter 6 for this last installment of the Disciples' Prayer. The first one is this. Um, tomorrow we celebrate Memorial Day. You've already heard about the Memorial Day pancake breakfast. Uh, if you haven't had the opportunity to go down towards this side of our, um, our building down by the kitchen area, down by the gym area where the breakfast will be held, you'll notice there's several pictures and stories of people within our community uh, and tied with our community who have served faithfully within our armed services with, within the United States. And I want to take a moment and just say thank you to those of you who have served. I also want to ask you to stand this morning, if you would, so that we can recognize you and say thank you this day. Thank you. I recognize tomorrow is Memorial Day, not Veterans Day, but it's a good opportunity to say thank you to those who've given so much and to remember what they have done in order to secure the freedoms that we get to freely enjoy here within this country. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, the second thing I want to do is to invite you to stand with me. Actually, hang on just a second. Hang on just a second. That was, that was, a, that was a fake out there. Before I have you stand, yeesh, missed it. Um, for the last couple of weeks, we've received a couple of questions with regard to the disciples' prayer, which we've been studying. And so I want to address those first. I won't make you stand through, the, through that. Um, the first question is this. I'm going to do this kind of quickly uh, to give you just gen general answers. If you want to dialogue more about this, I invite you to seek me out, or seek one of our pastors out. Um, I, I love talking about the scripture, and so I love engaging with this with you all. Um, the first question we received a couple weeks ago was, to whom do we pray? If Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, do we pray to the Father, do we pray to the Son, do we pray to the Spirit? Is it wrong to pray to the Son or the Spirit? Um, let's just kind of zoom out and say this. The most common New Testament practice for prayer is to pray to the Father. That's what Jesus teaches. But recognize that the Son and the Spirit are co-equal with the Father. It's, it's not that one of them is God and the other ones are not. They are all God. They are God in three persons, blessed Trinity, as we often sing. And so, yes, you can pray to the Father as Jesus teaches. You can also pray to the Son and you can pray to the Spirit. But they each, within their roles within the Godhead, have different functions that, that help us understand maybe why we pray to the Father. Jesus is our, is our mediator to the Father. He, he made the relationship with God personal and intimate through his death and resurrection. We come to know and trust the Father through the revelation and the person of his Son. Jesus, uh, Hebrews chapter four, says that he is our great high priest. In the book of John, it says that he came to reveal the Father. He says he and the Father are one, and so when we pray often in the name of Jesus, we're praying in his name and his authority for the glory and the purposes of God, all right? So may, 
Holy Spirit, let's talk about that for a moment. The Holy Spirit, the scripture says, is our counselor, the one who guides us into all truth. And one of the amazing things that I can't explain, I just know it's there because it's in the text. Romans 8 talks about how the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings. When we don't even know how to pray, he can pray on our behalf in accordance with God's will. Don't ask me to explain that. Just know that when you don't have words to pray, the Holy Spirit goes before you. And that's an encouragement to us in what we face each day. Um, the second question was, is there any importance with fasting and prayer? We, we, we see fasting and prayer coupled together throughout the scripture, Matthew 4, Acts 13, all over the place. Um, and, and here's the thing. The purpose of fasting is to concentrate your focus and your need upon God. Um, it's, it's kind of like, I, Pastor Tom shared this illustration with me. I thought it was really helpful for, for at least my mind. It's kind of like when you're trying to remember something and you tie a string around your finger, or you try, tie a, a bracelet around your hand because you want to remember to do something. Fasting is like um, depriving yourself of food so that you remember when you feel hunger pains that everything you need is dependent upon your Father. Um, it, it reminds us that we have daily dependence of God through the act of hunger. Now, it, it's profitable, provided you can do so medically, <laughs> there's my disclaimer, and, and that you practice it with the right heart and spirit. Um, shortly after the disciples' prayer, Jesus has a couple verses that talk about the outward show of holiness. And he says, be very careful that when you fast, he says, that, that, that you put oil on your faces so that you don't show men that you're fasting. That, that should be something that's between you and God. It shouldn't be an outward show of righteousness or anything like that, but rather to align your heart with God. Um, one of the things that Jesus rails against the Pharisees for, and earlier in Matthew chapter 6, is, is be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people so that you were seen by them. He, he, he doesn't want your outward acts of righteousness to be something that you go, hey, look at what you just did. Rather, it's something that should bring you closer to God. If it's not serving that purpose, um, be careful in how you practice it. Um, finally, and this is a great question that one of our elders and I, we were just kind of wrestling over with, with one night before meeting. Do our prayers matter? How do our prayers interact with God's sovereignty, God's sovereign will over the world? <clears throat> well, let me say this. God calls us to pray. He, he calls us to pray all throughout his word. He says, come to me and pray. James 4 says, pray. And, and he, James actually says, you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you don't ask with the right motives. Have the right motives in prayer. God wants you to come to him. The book of James also says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You might remember uh, the story of Abraham. We won't go there. That will take a long time. But the short Cliff Notes version, in Genesis 22, God comes to him and he says, Abraham, Abraham, will you take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac? Will you take him to the land of Moriah, and there I'm asking you to sacrifice him on an altar to me, all right? God is testing Abraham, and, and Abraham is one of those people who through his prayer life, through seeing how God has worked, through his failure, and through his success, has come to trust even when he doesn't understand it, that God is good and God is sovereign, and yet he willingly obeys. In God's sovereignty, God asks us to pray. 
Some things we only receive when we pray. It's one of those things that when your kid comes to you and, and they ask you something, you generously want to give to them. But sometimes you don't give to them unless they ask. It's, it's part of that relationship. And so uh, trusting that, yes, God is sovereign, and yet God calls us to participate with him in prayer and, and to pray for others even. Pa- Paul says in the book of Romans, I pray that the Jewish people might come to know the Messiah. There's great reasons why we pray, most of all to align our heart with God's and to come underneath his teaching and his sovereign will. So now, with that all said, would you stand with me for our reading of the scripture? And again, I invite you to say the Shema with me this morning as an affirmation of our faith. This isn't necessarily prayer, it's an affirmation of what we believe and what we are committing ourselves to today. If you would like to make this declaration over your life, please say it with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Therefore, you should pray like this, our Father in heaven. May your name be sanctified. May your kingship be established, and may your will be done in heaven and earth. Grant to us our sustaining needs this day. Forgive us our offenses, for we have forgiven those who have offended us. Lead us not into the grasp of the evil inclination, but deliver us from the evil one. Our Father and our King, we pray this prayer with intention and with focus. Because God, we want to be God-centered in all that we do. We want to be reminded that we are your children and that you care for us, and that you, have, um, that, that you desire for us to be about your will and your kingdom here on this earth as it is in heaven. God, help us to live out your word today by the power of your spirit, we pray, for the sake of Christ. And together we say, amen. Please be seated. The final phrase in the disciples' prayer is, the one, is one of great importance. It's the third request in this prayer. We're in Matthew chapter 6, by the way, uh, beginning, we're, we're studying verse uh, 13 today. <clears throat> it's the third request uh, in the prayer, and perhaps one that we forget too often. Um, we're generally conscious of our need for daily bread and needs. We're perhaps a little less conscious of our need for forgiveness within the relationships that we have in the community. Many of us, however, go on with life unaware of the evil that is around us, um, but less aware of how it personally affects us. More than one place in the scripture exhorts this final prayer. So as we study Matthew 6, 13, remember this. The disciple is one who has the identity of being God's child. That's why we can pray our Father. And God calls us to sanctify his name, to be about God's holiness and in how we live. He, he calls us to be a people who prayed much like Jesus did in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. And so we've studied how we recognize our need for God in receiving daily bread. We've talked about forgiveness, that whole dandelion thing last week. How many of you picked a dandelion this week? Any dandelion pickers? We have them all over our yard, and they're just great reminders of, of these great truths. 
I hope you've picked spiritual dandelions over the last uh, week or so in your life as the Spirit has led you. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, I invite you to listen to our podcast um, to, to catch up on that one. Today we study, do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. <clears throat> our passage this morning is important, yet sometimes misunderstood. Some immediate questions arise from the surface reading of this passage. Questions like, does God tempt us? Does God tempt us? Lead me not into temptation. Does God tempt us? Um, what does it mean to be delivered? When we pray, deliver us from evil, what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, who and or what is the evil one. If you have an NIV or an HCSB translation, you have evil one. If you have um, a King James or an NASB or an ESV, those are all just different translations of the scripture, um, it might say evil there. Is there a difference between the way that's translated? Why does that matter? Why is this prayer included within the disciples' prayer? If Jesus is going to focus on the most important things for our prayer life, why does he include the presence of evil in the adversary in this world? So to address these important questions, I want to define, beginning with an important term, I want to begin by defining an important term within this phrase. And it's the word test, trial, or temptation. In Greek, it's the word parasmon. Can you say parasmon? Parasmon, very good. Your Greek is fantastic today. There's two different ways that this word is used in Greek. The first way, or the first definition is this. It's an attempt to learn the nature or the character of something, or test or trial, all right? It's the way it's used in James chapter one when he says, count it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials or tests of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work in you, James says, James says, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. The idea of test trial here is the idea of learning the nature or the character of something. It's testing for what is there to see if it's genuine or not, all right? Uh, the other way that this word is used, though, is a different, is a different way. <clears throat> There's that one. The second one is an attempt to make one do something wrong. Uh, it means uh, a temptation or an enticement to sin, okay? So that first one, testing the nature or the character of something. The second one, testing someone so that they would be enticed to sin. So uh, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, prays, um, Father, if it is possible for me, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Just great picture of Jesus giving his life for the will of the Father. He comes to the disciples, he finds them sleeping, and he says to Peter, could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. All right, the idea of temptation there is the second one, so that you don't en enter into this, um, this context of wanting to do something wrong, having a temptation that might entice you to sin. The reality for our life is this, temptation is real. Maybe that's a slap of the obvious, but I think for me at least, I need to be reminded oftentimes temptation is real, and it's something that we must go against by the power of God. Facing temptation successfully requires submission to God's will above all. This is why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in such a way that their lives are consumed with the Father and the sanctifying of the name of God. We must be people who vigilantly watch and pray so that we do not fall into temptation. 
And we're going to talk about that a little bit more this morning as we look more in the book of James. But our flesh is weak. We must be people who wholly depend upon God's Spirit when we face temptations in this life. So does God tempt us? Well, the, the answer is no, but for perhaps an even more clear understanding of this, turn with me, please, to the book of James. Towards the end of the New Testament, after the book of Hebrews, you will find the book of James. We're going to be in chapter 1 together. James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, verse 12 says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 13 of James 1, Let no one say when he is tempted, same word there, periosmon, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. All right? So we're going to be talking about temptation. And this is not the temptation to test whether something is genuine. That is often something that God does, like to Abraham, like to those to, earlier in the book of James, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because these trials bring forth endurance, and that completes a work so that you're mature and complete, you're lacking nothing. That's not the kind of parasmon we're talking about. We're talking about the attempt to make someone do something wrong, temptation or incitement to sin. <clears throat> James indicates uh, within this phrase, we're going to talk about two different ways of temptation. Temptation from within us and temptation from without. We're talking about temptation from within right now. James indicates that, to, that, the, tem that the agent of temptation is not God, but rather our unholy desires. The word for desire in James 1.14, in James 1.14 there, is the word that Jesus uses for desires which choke out the word of God in a believer's life. And that's in Mark chapter 4. Um, in, in other words, when we have unholy desires, those are things that take the word of God and they just kind of make it less and less prominent. They, they, they set it to a side. They, they, they say, I'd rather do this than be in this. I'd rather pursue this than pursue this. I'd rather make this my end goal than knowing this and knowing God, my Father, as my end goal. Let me ask you a quick question as we keep going. This is self-convicting. Um, what things choke out the word of God in your life? If you're to take an honest look at your time in your life, what are the things that choke out the word of God in your life? Be careful. Those things, those desires may be such that they begin to remove you from living out of the power of God and his word. James 1 indicates a progression that occurs. Temptation occurs when unholy thoughts and actions, they lure and entice us. When these desires become realized, we sometimes sin. We've, we've acted upon these desires. And taken to the extreme, it's the sin that causes separation, apart, separation from God apart from the work of the Messiah. Turn with me just a couple pages over to James chapter 4. We're going to be spending a good chunk of time in James chapter 4, so just kind of keep your finger there. 
in James 4, he develops this idea further. 4, verse 1, he says, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire, that idea of desire again, and you do not have. You murder and covet, but you cannot obtain. You fight and you war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it all on your evil desires. Evil desires. James recognizes that even amongst the people of God, there are wars and fights, and that these wars and fights don't come from anywhere that is holy. Rather, they're selfish attempts to serve our interests instead of God's. They're attempts to pursue those things that we think are going to bring us joy and happiness in life, but really, in the end, they don't. They, they, they bring us maybe what our flesh wants, but they don't bring us the fullness of God's Spirit, which is what really brings us joy and meaning and purpose in life. Just think for a moment. How many church fights, how many quarrels between husbands and wives or between siblings or between people at school or at work, how many of these things would be solved if we as God's people would honestly come before him in prayer and ask him to guide us by his word and to give us his desires and not our own? The, the answer is most of not all of them. The evil desires come from our flesh, and our flesh is at war against the good, the holy, and the righteous things of God in our life. And so one of the questions we must constantly ask is, how then do we battle the temptations that we face within us? How do we fight this war that, that, that's going on inside of our own hearts with our flesh? James 4 continues, he says in verse 4, he says, you adulterous people, or you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So, so God has given his spirit to us so that we might honor him with our bodies. And he's calling us not to be people who serve two masters. He, he's calling us not to be people who live dual lives, who on the one hand we desire to honor God, but on the other hand we live out of a completely different life that is self-gratifying. We cannot live both for God and for ourselves. The, the, the two are just completely incompatible. When we pursue friendship with the world, we act in opposition towards God. All right? Look, at, look, at me, look with me at verse 5. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's a truth you can take to the bank. Pride, the arrogance of our lives, is always something that God opposes. God opposes our own self-interest because he knows that when we become all about us, we become not about him. The first three verses of the disciples' prayer are God-centered, and I think they're God-centered for a reason. Because we're his children, because we're called to desire to sanctify his name and his kingdom and his will, the natural overflow of being so God-centered is, is we become a lot less focused on ourselves, and we say, God, I rest upon your grace. I rest upon your truth. I rest upon all that you want to give me today because I know that is what is good for me because that's in accordance with who you are, your character, and your will. So, so what do we do when we face temptation from within? 
Well, the first thing we do is we ask God for grace. We ask God for grace. God, give me grace to face this temptation, not in my own pride, but rather in the strength that comes by your word and by your spirit. And the second thing is, is flee whenever possible. <laughs> flee whenever possible. I, I love what Alistair Begg says with regard to this. Someone shared this with me recently, and I thought it was a great quote. He, Alistair Begg says, my conduct has to correspond to my prayer. To pray sincerely, lead me not into temptation, means then that I will not put myself heedlessly, needlessly, or willfully in the way of temptation. Just consider that for a moment. To pray sincerely, lead me not into temptation, means that I will not put myself heedlessly, needlessly, or willfully in the way of temptation. One of the temptations I face is the desire for pastries, all right? We're, we're, we're going a little, a little something we can all understand here. I love pastries, all right? A, a couple years ago, for Valentine's Day, my wife made pastries for me. My brother and sister-in-law were up visiting, and, and they weren't super big. They, they were small. They were like this big, and, and I would eat like eight in a day or something like that, I just, I would inhale these things because I love pastries, donuts, danishes, all this kind of stuff. We were at um, Costco the other day. We, we love Costco. One of the things about Costco is they have these delicious looking pastries and they're, they're like this big and you can get eight of them. They come in two four packs so you can choose what flavor you want. Um, they come in two four-packs for $7.99, so it's a dollar a pastry. It's a decent deal, but you have to be committed to all eight of them. And every time I walk by that, I tell my wife, oh, those look so good. Oh, those look so good. And the more you stay, the more I stay, near those pastries, the more I want to purchase them. So really, one of the things that detracts me is like eight bucks. I don't really want to spend eight bucks on that. But if there's free pastries or something like that, oh my goodness, the temptation is ridiculous. One of the ways that we actively pursue not putting ourselves in temptation is getting our lives away from the pastries, <laughs> all right? You want to be healthy. Move yourself away from things that are unhealthy. Sometimes you are in situations where there's nothing you can do, but most of the time there are things that you can actively do to move yourself away from that temptation. The first thing you must do though, and that I must do, is say, God, give me grace to honor and sanctify your name in this situation, be specific, in this situation that I face right here, right now. And you do that by having an understanding of God's truth to combat the lies and the temptations from within. That's the idea of temptation from within. There's also, though, in the scripture, this idea of temptation from the outside or temptation from without. <clears throat> the disciples' prayer says, deliver us from the evil one. Yours might say, deliver us from evil. The word deliver here is a word that means to rescue, all right? It, it's a rescue that describes what God has to do on your behalf. The word rescue, it means to rescue from danger, to save, to rescue, deliver, to preserve, and I love this photo. This is a photo of a shepherd leading his flock. He's leading them through a canyon, and a good shepherd knows exactly where to take his flock for the exact food that they need, for the exact um, care that they need to, to, to receive to stay healthy. He knows how to care for their every detail down to the small thing. But the other thing a shepherd does is he makes sure 
that there, is no, that there are no predators that would attack this flock. And if there are predators that attack this flock, the shepherd is ready to stand in and to fight against them. You might remember the story of David. This is before, as he's getting ready to fight Goliath, he says, you know, as a shepherd, I fought bears, I fought lions, all these things within my role as a shepherd. Jesus is described in the scriptures as the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep, the one who stands in to save, to rescue, to deliver, and to preserve. So when we come to understanding the text here, evil or evil one, de de deliver us from the evil one, one of the things that we need to understand is that the word evil here, it's an adjective, and it means being morally or socially worthless, wicked, evil, bad, base, worthless, vicious, or degenerate, okay? In the context of Matthew chapter 6, while this is an adjective, it is best translated as evil one, because it refers to the one who is morally destructive. That's how it's being used in the original language. I'll, I'll spare you the, de the details there. Um, it's translated best as a personal being, one who is evil. Um, Dr. Dan Wallace, um, he, he says this. Dr. Wallace is one of the foremost uh, Greek scholars. You see William Mounts at the bottom there because that's the book it comes from. It's, it's from my basics of biblical Greek grammar. He says this, though. <clears throat> this is Dr. Dan Wallace. There is no little theological difference between the two. Evil and evil one is what he's talking about. The father does not always keep his, his children out of danger, disasters, or the ugliness of the world. In short, he does not always deliver us from evil, but he does deliver us from the evil one. The text is not teaching that God will make our life a rose garden, but that he will protect us from the evil one, the devil himself. And so while we have this war that goes on within us against our flesh, we also have a war that is being assaulted against us from outside, from the devil himself. From the devil himself. <clears throat> the adversary, Satan, the devil, the father of lies, the God of this world, all these names serve to describe him as being someone who is holy against God and God's kingdom purposes. The text says that he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking people to devour. And the picture of this it is, recognizes that he is active and present even when we may not recognize him. When Jesus prays for his disciples in John 15, he says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He acknowledges that there is a real onslaught that we experience from the adversary. And central to this work of the adversary, the one who is against God, Satan, is the presence of lies. Lies are one of the greatest things that the adversary wants to inject into our life to help us get off of what God has called us to do and onto our own thing. And, and, and here's, here's the thing about lies. The best lies are the small ones. They're the ones that are only this far from the truth so that you don't have, so it's harder for you to detect what here is true and what here is false. Um, when I was uh, in high school and college, one of the jobs I held was a, a worker at the fine dining establishment of Taco Bell. And um, <laughs> all of you who love Taco Bell, yes, yes. I worked there for five years, and I still eat there occasionally, if that is any testimony. Um, that's not important. Uh, one of the things I had to do, though, is whenever we'd get $50 bills or $100 bills, our managers always said, check them. And they 
told us how to check to spot for the identification marks of a genuine 50 or a genuine $100 bill. Because once you take that bill into your possession, you're responsible for that. If you have a $100 bill and it's not genuine, guess what? You're out 100 bucks. You can take it and give it to the secret service and they'll do whatever it is they do with it. But <clears throat> the best way to understand whether or not something is genuine or to, to know whether or not something is counterfeit is to know what does a genuine 50 or genuine 100 or genuine 20 or genuine 10 look like. And if you go online, you can actually find all these identifying markers, things that you are to look for. The best counterfeiters miss it by this much. And those are the bills that get passed off. But even though they look almost good enough, they're worthless. They're absolutely worthless. When Jesus is faced with temptation in his encounter with the adversary in Matthew chapter 4, the way he responds to all these things that the adversary gives him, he responds with the truth of God's word. Even in one of them, um, the, the adversary is quoting scripture, and Jesus right back at him says, yeah, but did you know scripture also says this? The way that we resist temptation in the power of the Spirit is to know the things that are genuine. In other words, to know the things that are true, which is why, friends, we must be people of the text. If God's word is as it says it is, the source of all truth, and if the Holy Spirit's job is to lead and to guide us into truth, we can trust that God will make his truth known to us as we invest our lives in seeking to know him through his word. So how do we address the temptation of our flesh and the onslaught of the adversary? Well, this is a question that we must ask ourselves constantly, and neglecting this has grave consequences for our lives. Um, continue looking with me in James chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 7. And you'll notice, I, I actually I have this up here for you as well, because I want you to notice all the words that are in uh, big type and they're red, all of these are imperatives. There are, you must do this. Do this, do this, do this. All those are imperatives. If you want to underline it and write imperative in your Bible, if you do that, I encourage you to do so. James says, therefore, with all these things going on, uh, submit yourselves to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit. What does submit mean? Submit means to voluntarily come to God and to praise Jesus taught, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Could I ask you a question? What areas of your life are not submitted to God today? What areas of your life are you holding back and saying, I'm going to trust God with all this, but I'm not going to trust him with this? Submit yourselves to God, not partially, completely. Voluntarily say, God, may your will be done here. Be so sold, be so sold out to God's will that that is what matters most to you in your life. <clears throat> but it's not just submit to God. He says, resist the devil. <clears throat> After submitting to God, we must actively oppose the lies of the adversary. We must be armed with the truth of God's word to combat the falsehood and the deceit. We must recognize that we are dependent upon God for wisdom and truth because only God is the source of all truth. In fact, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Ephesians chapter 6, and we, we won't go there, uh, that, that's a whole passage that deserves its own study. But 
it was interesting. In Ephesians chapter 6, he says, stand. Stand against the adversary. Stand with what? The belt of truth. All right? The first thing he commands the Ephesian hearers is, have truth around you like a belt as part of your standing. And the last thing he says is, and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which is truth. Truth is so foundational to addressing the temptations of the flesh and the adversary in our life. So submit, resist. Um, the next one, verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, let me say this. The adversary, while powerful on this earth right now, is a defeated foe. The adversary is a defeated foe. We, we don't stand in our own strength. We stand in the strength of the one who has conquered sin and the grave and the adversary, and, and it's really, in many ways, game over in terms of the cosmic reality of this. God's, or James says, draw near to God. God will draw near to you. Now, it's possible in our own flesh to resist. It's, it's possible to say, I, I'm going to experience success because I'm going to say no, and I'm going to say no, and I'm going to say no, but the no that we're saying comes from our own strength and our own pride, and oh man, I can totally have this. I, I can totally do this in my own power. The power that God wants to use as we resist the adversary is not ours, it's his. Because he knows if we stand in our own strength, that strength will eventually fall. It's only in the power of the one who has defeated the adversary that we find the power not to grit our teeth, but to live in freedom. So draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Many of us want to withdraw from God when we are faced with temptation and when we sin. That may be because of guilt, that may be because of other things going on in our, in our life, but the truth of God's word says, when I'm faced with temptation or when I'm in sin, draw near to God. God wants to handle your sin. He wants to make you clean again. He wants to restore relationship with you. He wants to, to cover you again by the blood of Christ. Now, positionally, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are already covered by the blood of Christ, but he wants to, to re-engage you in fellowship, which is broken through sin. God will draw near to you and I, and he will give you grace to face the adversary when we have those moments of temptation and sin. And then he says this, he says, cleanse your, your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. In other words, confess committed sins to God, deal firmly with the secret desires and the sins in your heart. Deal firmly with them. Often the enemy uses these secret desires and sins to keep us from going to God, almost as leverage or almost as guilt over us. Say, God won't take you because of that. The truth is, is that he will, and he has. Go to God with your sin, not part of it, all of it. Even the most rooted dandelions go to God and say, God, I need help pulling up this weed. And trust that when you do that, God will pur purify your heart and he'll give you a one-mindedness toward his heart and his will and his kingdom. Be miserable, mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. That's part of the sorrow of um, repenting and coming before God. Place your hope again in God's mercy and forgiveness. Walk in the light of who you are in Christ. In other words, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord with where he has you today, wherever that is trust the Lord. Then he says in verse 10, 
Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. Man, what a great promise. We think of humility as being something that's bad. We think of humility as something that's not worth pursuing. But the truth of the scripture is that God says, humble yourself before me, and I will lift you up. As uh, my, my kids were learning how to walk, they would often tumble. And my natural instinct as a dad is to go and to lift them back up again, to steady their feet. If they're on flat pavement, to say, okay, it's flat here. If they're on rocky pavement, to say, okay, solidify your feet. Here we go. You're going to walk again. You're going to walk forward. And as you walk, guess what? I'm right here with you. You're going to be fine, but you're going to walk. I wanted to plant their feet securely so that they knew um, that they had the power to take their stand and to walk again. Show you this picture again of a shepherd leading his flock. Jesus is the good shepherd. The Messiah, Jesus, provides, as Psalm 23 says, everything we need. Says, I lack nothing. Says, He leads us by still waters. He restores our soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Says, even though when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because he is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. He's your good shepherd. Could I ask you a question this morning? Are you one of his sheep? Have you come to the point in your life where you've said, God, enough with my sin, enough with myself, I recognize that I am sinful and I'm broken before you and apart from the work of Jesus by dying on the cross and by being raised to life, apart from that, I have no hope. Have you come to join the flock of God? If you have, bless the Lord. If you haven't, love to talk with you afterwards. If you have, trust that your shepherd cares for you. Trust that your shepherd will not let you out of his perfect care. And even when you go through difficult times and seasons in life, know that your shepherd is there with you. Practice the daily presence of God as you seek to rely upon him for wisdom and for grace and for power. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father and our King, thank you for the reminder that you are a shepherd, that you care for us in very practical ways. God, you lead us in ways that are everlasting and that are true. God, you lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake, and even when those paths are really difficult, God, you are there with us, and you ask us to trust you, and I pray for for my friends here this morning that whatever situation they find themselves in right now, whether it's a temptation from the sinful desires of their own hearts, or whether it's the onslaught of the enemy, or whether it's a combination of the two, God, that they would stand firm, that they would recognize that they are a part of a spiritual battle that even goes beyond us. God, thank you for the victory that you have over the adversary, over sin, over the grave, and because of that, God, we rejoice We rejoice and we ask that you would help us to stand. That you would help us to walk forward 
in your grace, not in our own strength. God, you know the issues that we each face. You know how deep some of those roots go. God, give us the courage to deal with them this day. We bless your name. Your name is above every name. Scripture says that the name of Jesus, every name will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus, the Messiah, is God. To the glory of God the Father. We praise your all-sufficient and mighty name today. Thanks for joining us these past several weeks as we have studied the disciples' prayer. Um, If you'll recall, we've been giving you some reminder cards, and these are just inviting you to pray the disciples' prayer intentionally at least twice a day. You'll receive those cards as you leave this morning. Take that, stick in your Bible, put it to where where you'll remember. If you need to, set an alarm on your phone to remind you at certain times of the day to pray to God to seek his face and say, God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Go go through all those forms of the prayer. Um, Two quick things before your your dismissal. Uh, If you want to continue studying further in what we talked about today, I really encourage Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God so on and so forth, okay? That would be a great study for you if you're looking for somewhere to dive in the scripture. The second is this. One of the really helpful resources to me was a book called Reclaiming Surrendered Ground. And it gets a lot more practical with various sins and things that keep us from having a vibrant relationship with God. And and that's by a guy by the name of Jim Logan. It's a book that we had to read at Moody. It's a Moody Press book. Um, We had to read for one of our classes. And it was just so helpful in how to actively... um, seek the Lord and to stand in his strength and not in our own. So if you want to go deeper, I encourage you to pick that up. It's like 11 bucks on Amazon. If you need that name, you can come find me afterwards and I can give it to you in handwriting if you want. Our, um, our benediction today comes from First Chronicles chapter 29. You may notice the one part of the prayer that is sometimes in certain translations, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Sometimes you have brackets around that part. The reason you have brackets is many scholars don't believe that's a part of the original manuscript, but it is thoroughly biblical and a very appropriate way to end the disciples' prayer. So I'm going to pray part of David's prayer from 1 Chronicles that really is kind of maybe more the foundation of that idea in the Bible. Then David praised the Lord in the sight of all the assembly, and he said, May you be praised, Lord God of our Father Israel, from eternity to eternity, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty. For everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom, and you are exalted as head over all. Riches and honor come from you, and you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God We give you thanks, and we praise your glorious name. And together as a people, will we say amen together? Amen. You're dismissed. Blessings to you. Thanks for listening. 
We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check out fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.